This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. Welcome to The Mindfield, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Today on the show, Ingratitude. What exactly is the extent of the moral failing of not seeing the blessings that are put, put before you, not wow. taking advantage of rare opportunities that come your way, and sort of swatting them away as though they're absolutely nothing. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is the guilty party of my co-hosts in this grand final week. How are you, Scott? I was about to say, this is feeling very, very pointed. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to feel. Well, I know exactly how I'm supposed to feel about this. I'm yes. supposed to feel guilty. You should. So this just is... for, for context, <laughs> Scott lives in Brisbane. Yeah. There are two grand finals this week, and, and I'm not trying to privilege one over the other as far as importance goes, but as, mm. what's relevant as far as Scott is concerned is that the AFL grand final is in Brisbane. How much involvement have you had in this? It's first time ever it's been held outside Victoria. Brisbane finally mm. gets this opportunity that the rest of the That's country's right. been baying for for a long time. What are you doing on the weekend? Uh, I imagine I'll be attending to some yard work. Uh, I'll be spending some valuable time with my little boys out on the basketball court, I dare say. Although at this stage, and I should say that we're recording this on Wednesday, so if people are listening to it on the weekend, then, you know, you'll know all sorts of you've things. Then you're already been guilty, and it's in the past. Yes, I, I, I will already always have been guilty. But also, I mean, there's a very real chance that there's going to be some horrendous weather this weekend, too. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen, Waleed. Look, uh, I, I feel... The very fact that I knew that both grand finals were on this weekend, you've got to understand that's a huge step forward for me. And the fact that I've already felt a kind of, geez, isn't it interesting that of all weeks, Waleed would like to be here in Brisbane, <laughs> which is not something that can generally be said for you, much less during grand finals. Oh, hang on. That's a bit rough. I don't uh, uh, so, so, you know, it, this, this, has been, this has been on my mind, but it's not been on my mind powerfully enough for me to do anything about it. And I, I do apologize. This I, is, do, do you remember, Waleed, E.M. Forster had this wonderful saying, which I kind of think is probably right, but I'm not sure how far I'd like to be pressed on it, where he said that if given the choice between uh, betraying my country and betraying my friend, I like to think that I'd betray my country. I, I, I do, as a matter of fact, feel, although I've got no reticence whatsoever about my decision not to attend the games this weekend, I do feel that I've betrayed you, and for that I, I am sorry. You've betrayed both, actually, Scott. This is the thing. There's no coming back. Oh, yeah. I Country think and it, friend. I think Country dis- and friend. Yeah, that's right. I think perhaps oh, even planet. Word. I think oh. this may even disqualify you from hosting a show that has anything to do with <laughs> ethics, moral philosophy. <laughs> so enjoy your last outing, Scott. Oh, wow. It's been so, so, so going along would have been one of those be quiet and eat your, eat your vegetables moments. It's one of those things where it's good for you even if you're not going no, to No, it's be grateful because you have been – like this is pearls before swine stuff, Scott. That's what yeah, this is. Yeah. That's true. That's true. All right. Should we do the show that you wanted we're not, to do? We're not talking about ingratitude this week. We've talked about ingratitude before. Yeah, this isn't one Clearly not enough. Anyway. Yeah. Um, there was a debate – that was being had among our listeners a few years ago. And I kind of feel that this week might be one of those weeks to revisit it. Uh, It was about where you and I would feature in an A.A. Milne book, a uh, children's book, to be exact. <laughs> That's right. Do you that. remember this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you do have a little bit of a dour temperament. I think that's probably fair Are you to saying say. that I was Eeyore? I, you were Eeyore by popular vote. I was – and I'm – 
I would have liked to have been Winnie the Pooh because of his love of language and his inexactitude when it comes to the use of language. But I think the votes had it that I was probably more piglet uh, because of uh, an irrationally optimistic view on life. Yeah. I think that's probably – that probably holds this time around as well. Do you remember, Waleed, weeks and weeks and weeks ago now, right at the beginning of this pandemic – we were having some interesting discussions about what life might look like in the wake of COVID-19, or, or at least, you know, once things began to get back to something like normal. We were having some interesting conversations about whether this would refresh or renew our our relish of the importance of face-to-face communication, whether this would uh, bring some national governments back to their senses when it comes to the importance of social investment and the importance of social safety nets. Um, I think there have been f- a fair few times over the last few months that we've maybe felt as though the outlook on the other side of the pandemic may well be rosy. Could this be, for instance, the beginning of a rethink of the way that we consider our obligation to the natural world. Naive uh, tosh, Scott. That's use what it was. of energy. Could this, could this even be enough? Could this pandemic even be enough to turn as ideologically committed a laissez-faire government as the Morrison government into something like, well, maybe not socialist, but, he, but perhaps maybe wake, awakening its socialist proclivities? Well, that, um, that's been I, emphatically answered, hasn't it? Yeah, 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 it has. I think the recent federal budget has demonstrated uh, just what kind of government the Morrison government is. Especially can can I put a caveat policy. on this, though? Yes, please. That's for now. So yeah, the, the other thing right. I would say, and I, I know this isn't where we're going for the whole show, so I'll, I'll be brief, but the other thing to say is that sometimes events force you such that in, into positions such that your ideology no longer really matters. Hmm. And we've seen a small example of that with the emphasis on debt and deficit, right? That is now mm, just that's, gone. That's true. Because, that's true. well, what choice do you have? So if this goes long enough and becomes deep enough, I can foresee a moment where the Morrison government more or less has to abandon its attempt to anchor the regeneration in the market. It, you know, you could reach a point where it's like, wow, this is basically depression stuff. And so let's go build something really big, like a dam or... Um, something. Let's launch a new deal, etc. Because circumstances force that upon us. I don't think it necessarily will happen, but I think that's possible. Hmm. I think you're probably right. It is interesting to me the way that the language surrounding debt uh, that was really the spearhead, I think, of the coalition's attack on Labor's record in government. That really has been put to the side. And I think probably you're rightly so. There are things that governments can do and there's debt that can be taken on for the benefit of society and I think the, the, the benefit of that has now been placed beyond doubt. I guess to me, Waleed, and, and this is what I'm hoping we can talk about today, not in gratitude or grand finals, um, there, there are two things that I guess give me a degree of concern though about what life looks like for us, for the state of our common life, if you like, on the other side of this pandemic. One is the approach that this government has taken to tax cuts. I think there are there are very good, reasonable, morally compelling cases to be made for why they've taken the uh, decision that they have about a series of uh, of gradually increasing staged tax cuts over the next, what is it, four or five years? Sort uh, of, yeah. Yes, yeah, sort of. It's more uh, that most of it happens now and then there's one that happens. That's right. And, 
And the goal of that effectively being there being a great big flat tax rate that covers effectively, on some estimates, around about 80 percent of the Australian workforce. I guess the other thing that I've been thinking – so you know, one is what this particular approach to taxation policy, maybe not what it says about tax but what it says about us. Uh, another thing that I've been thinking a lot about is the fact that those tax cuts have been announced off the back of a decision to drop the uh, the social welfare or the job seeker rate back down to poverty levels. That really is concerning to me on all sorts of levels. We can talk about that. Mm. I guess the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about is what – COVID-19 has revealed about our lived experience of inequality, not just fiscal inequality, not just financial inequality, not just the extent to which there are some who earn disproportionately more than anybody else and maybe pay, don't pay the amount of tax that they should, but about the lived experience of inequality, the extent to which uh, our lived experience has become, if you like, almost self-justifying, self-reinforcing, and therefore on the other side of this pandemic, self-perpetuating. In other words, what we're talking about, I think, is whether COVID-19 will help us overcome some of our tendencies towards inequality or whether it's going to widen our tendencies to, towards living in an increasingly unequal society. Can I ask you, you what, what our means there? Yeah, look, <laughs> um, I uh, I prefer as a matter of moral commitment to talk about our because I do prefer speaking in terms of a shared commitment to a common life. And I think it's very, very, very few of us that opt out of that shared commitment altogether. We rationalize, uh, I think, um, uh, morally dubious uh, decisions that we take. Uh, and certain commitments that we have as being, well, ultimately good for people around us. But I do think when it comes to our, uh, it is something, a, a common life is something that we live into. Uh, um, and but, so, but are you talking about decisions we make as citizens with respect both. to each other, or are you talking about government policy or both. what? Both, both, in fact, both, in fact. So to explain what that means at the individual level, what decisions would well, I as as an individual make that are part of this equation of my commitment to inequality or equality? Hmm. Hmm. Good. Um, well, one is being in favor of what I think, what I personally think is a retrogressive uh, or a retrograde taxation system. So I'm Embracing not in favor it. of that, but yes. it's going to happen and there's nothing I can do about that. Uh, yes, I think that's so probably what, what now? right. Um, I think what that can then lead to our various forms of personal decisions that we do need to make uh, about forms of charitable uh, um, uh, and informal donation. But I think the other thing, Waleed, is the way that we approach shared spaces, uh, our willingness to not enclose ourselves in various forms of geographical privilege, the way that I think some of us do, uh, but being prepared to re-embrace the importance of shared spaces and shared experiences as one of the many ways that we live our lives in such a way that we deny that there are, in fact, not just classes around us, but castes around us. I think one of the things that a lived experience of inequality does is it gives us the ability to say that by working the way that I have, by saving the way that I have, by buying a house in the area that I have, it gives me certain privileges not to associate with, not to be neighborly towards people who 
by virtue of their experience, have to live in other areas to which I am mercifully exempt. I think one of the things that abandoning the idea of castes and embracing the idea of an equal society does is it really should force us back into shared spaces where we get the opportunity to mingle with one another, to be exposed to the experiences of one another, and ultimately reinforced uh, the importance uh, of having lives yeah. that genuinely are in common rather than separate. Sure, but the availability and accessibility of those shared spaces is usually dependent on things that are beyond any individual's control. Yes, I think that's right. Um, I mean, I don't really think this is that much of an example, but it caused a bit of a stir. But, you know, the idea of um, an exclusive space on Bondi Beach, hmm. uh, you can't control that and I can't control that. Um, but that would remove at least an aspect of a shared public space. Um, so in other words, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is I, I wonder to what extent your attempt to make this about individual decisions is compelling when so much of the stuff that drives this is bigger than that. It, it's necessarily structural. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, to, to some extent, it's doubtless structural. But I think the decision, for instance, will lead about where we decide to purchase houses. That, for me, is a vastly important decision that most of us make, although probably decreasing numbers of us will make. Um, the decision to buy houses in areas that, for instance, are regarded as exempt from certain socioeconomic pressures or aren't burdened by, for instance, the quote-unquote social scourge of public housing, uh, the decision to live in areas that will place us in zones for the best public schools rather than uh, moving quite deliberately into areas that will, by their very nature, place us into community with those that belong to different classes and in the eyes of many different castes, uh, they are very much individual decisions, I think. Yeah, I think you're putting a lot on people making life decisions for some purpose, some sort of grander purpose of equality that is a bit of a machinery, like a bit of a machine that will plough on regardless. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I see what you're trying to do and, and I don't think it's a frivolous thing to try to do. I just think you have to overload it in order for it to work overloaded in terms of giving it more significance than it's yeah. due. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think you have to lean too heavily on individual choices and make them mean too much in order for this analysis to work. Look, I, I don't – I'm actually not trying to push this analysis too far. I, and I don't necessarily disagree with you. I do think inequality is something that's more structural. But I also think that people's lived experience of inequality – and this is why the some of the ideas that were floated about an exclusive area of Bondi Beach where people who are willing to pay can in fact swim mm. uh, or rest on the sand or whatever. I think the symbolic import of that was far disproportionate. It was far more important than probably the material yeah. Yeah. importance of it. And it, it – it, it probably signaled something that ought never to be signaled about people's ability to access what genuinely should be held open as public Maybe. space. Or was it just a cafe on a beach? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. can you see the screen in front of us? Have you noticed I that can. Sinead's, <laughs> the bit where she says knee reset has gone from black normal size to red highlighted and about three times the size of the normal thing. It makes me tempted just to keep talking about Just to about see what happens reason. next? <laughs> um this is the minefield. 
You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be uh, doing right now. Thank you very much for that. You can catch us anytime on the ABC Listen app, or you can subscribe to our podcast where we keep going with extra content. Uh, Sinead's still upset about the lateness of the reset, in case you're wondering. She's now written, do not dare keep talking about it. So that's where we're up to. It just, I feel like you're goading me now, Sinead. We better not. Scott, let's get to our guest. One of these days, Sinead just needs to join us on the show, I, I think. Know, that's that really yes, The last yes, ever yes, minefield, I think she's the guest. Okay, right. Here we go. Uh, speaking of guests, we are delighted to have one of our favorites back on the show. Luara Frasioli is Senior Lecturer in Political Philosophy at the University of Sydney. She's joined us before. As a matter of fact, she's also written a wonderful piece on just the example that Waleed brought up before about the proposed uh, uh, the proposal to privatize or to rope off a portion of Bondi Beach. It's one of the things that got us thinking about this topic. It's one of the many reasons we've got her back on the minefield. Luara, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Um, so, so look, I, I'm wary about diving in too much in specific examples or throwing our net too broadly. I do think that inequality is probably something a little bit bigger, a little bit more morally thorny than we give it credit for. I do think it probably has something more to do with uh, structures and with decisions for, of progressive taxation or not on the part of federal government. But let's just begin at a very, very, very basic level. What is inequality and why should it be morally problematic in the first place? Because, of course, there are a great many moral and political philosophers that don't think it's necessarily morally problematic. Yes, well, that's a very difficult, uh, complex uh, question in political philosophy. What is inequality? What is equality? Uh, and what's the relationship between inequality and uh, injustice or equality and justice? But I think most philosophers would say that um, equality is constitutive of justice. So we need some degree of equality in order to have a just society. And the flip side of that is that if you reach some level of inequality, you no longer have a just society, right? So, but then you have to ask the question about uh, how much inequality is acceptable, how much inequality we would just society kind of been able to um, accept without leading to without us finding ourselves in relationships of oppression, of exploitation, of domination, and that's where philosophers disagree. So some philosophers think that we need a very kind of basic level of, of equality, kind of equality of opportunity, say, uh, where people should be kind of have formal rights in order to um, compete for jobs, in order to you know buy a house and pursue the things they care about. Whereas other philosophers think that we need much more, we need um, much a greater level of equality in order to have justice, because it's very easy for relationships between people to be contaminated by uh, inequality of status, for those relationships to then allow people to oppress, to dominate, and to exploit. So in a nutshell, yes, uh, there's a tight relationship between inequality and injustice, and then we need to figure out how much of it. Uh, puts us in a position where then we kind of open the door for all those problematic relationships that make life worse for all of us, not just those who are exploited and dominated, etc. Can I just follow it up really quickly, Waleed? Uh, uh, Luara, I, I wonder what's the relationship between inequality and humiliation? Because you, you, you could say, for instance, that a particular society gives, say, degrees of unemployment benefits to those who find themselves out of employment, uh, incapable of finding a job, and yet the way in which they are required to pursue those or to attain those benefits um, places them 
essentially in the position of almost being a supplicant uh, or engaging in forms of quote-unquote mutual obligation that are degrading or ways that may well uh, make them, yes, they get their benefit, although it's only just enough maybe to allow them to subsist. How does, how does inequality and the lived experience, I suppose, of humiliation, uh, what's the relationship between those? Good. So um, I wanted to. I, I will answer your question by going back to the discussion you both were having before about whether we have reasons for optimism or we should be kind of despairing about the budget and where we're heading as a society. So I think one reason to be optimistic, and I'm, I am kind of generally disposed to being quite optimistic. So take this with a grain of salt. But I, one thing that I, I think has really changed with the one thing that changed with the crisis was that so many of us who had had never met anyone who, you know, were on welfare payments now had friends and family members who lost their job uh, for nothing they've done. Right? They they had no fault or choice of their own. And I think that really has changed the way we perceive those at the, at, who are kind of making do with, say, the job seeker payment. And I think many of us would kind of feel way more sympathy towards those who have to be at that level. And so I think, of course, you would prefer to live in a society where we, we have sympathy to be, towards people we've never met who are, yeah, basically at that position where they are the mercy of society, whether they can pay for their bills, whether they can feed their children, all of those things, whether they can pay their rent uh, and kind of feel this humiliation that it's up to the government and whether society supports or not, uh, whether they can kind of meet their basic needs and provide for their family. But unfortunately, not not many people are moved by that. And hopefully now the fact that so many of us have experienced that firsthand, as you say, the lived experience of either having experienced that yourself or, or knowing people who are in that position and, and seeing how humiliating it, it is to be at the mercy of others in that sense. You know, so many, so many people who are in that position had jobs, they had worked their whole lives, they had set up business, they were, you know, doing everything the government says they should be doing. And now they find themselves in a position where there's nothing they can do to lift themselves out of that poverty level. So that seems like an important difference, except that it seems that that's not the way that society's come to view it. You look at the budget, it very clearly returns to the old model, the old understanding, the old narrative about the way unemployment works. By dropping JobSeeker, which was uh, New Start, back to its original barely above poverty level, in fact, you'd probably say it is poverty level, by dropping it to that, it's making a very clear statement about what it thinks about unemployment. Um, and the budget has been relatively popular. I mean, any polling that's available, such as it is, and there's problems with it, but it seems to suggest that it's been relatively well received. Um, I wonder if actually what's happened is the way in which people have responded to the recession is we're prepared to wear inequality for the sake of kick-starting the economy. That's really what this is about. And if we buy the economic model that suggests that this is the way to do it, that is a market-led model that doesn't overindulge people who are unemployed and provides them incentives to get employed, then if that's what we believe, then that's what we're throwing our lot in with and uh, inequality can more or less be moved to the back burner. 
Yes, I guess I wanted to say that then the response uh, we got from the public towards the budget then gave me reason for despair. So before I just wanted to say what was the reason oh, for sorry. optimism? <laughs> the change in lived experiences, right? So more people knowing how it feels like to be in that position and more people knowing someone who is in that position. But then, yes, the fact that uh, people read, they see in the news how so many families now can give their children fruits and vegetables, right? And um, that 4,000 children were uh, lived out of poverty in Tasmania, for example, during the when the supplement kicked in. And the fact that there hasn't been an outcry with us going back to a level that's much closer. Yeah, as you said, at, kind of at, the, uh, at the kind of threshold of poverty and if it goes back to previous levels where well and truly into poverty levels. So that, that gives me a reason for despair. And I think it's connected to this way we keep seeing the budget. And I've noticed that in the last few years that even the, and the media does a kind of a little bit guilty of this, uh, part, partly to blame here, that you see the coverage of the budget all about what will I gain from this budget? Uh, yeah. What will you get from the budget? And I mean, if we're thinking about the budget this way, especially so many of us who, you know, are lucky enough just to have our jobs, to uh, are privileged in many ways. If we're thinking about that extra holiday that we can now have because of the tax cut, uh, we're not going to make much progress. No, that's right. We'll pick up more of this with Luara Fiacelli, a senior lecturer in political philosophy at the University of Sydney on the podcast right now. We're done on the radio. We'll see you next week. Um. Thank you, Luara and Waleed. Let's, can, can we just pick up on the issue of tax for a moment? Because, I mean, you're right, there has, generally speaking, I think, been a fairly large amount of public approbation about the prospects of, of tax cuts. Um, and, you know, I, I should also say that just pivoting back to moral philosophy or to political philosophy for a second, even someone like John Rawls, who had, I think, in many respects, an unimpeachable concept of the notion and the institutions, the procedures of public justice, even he, through what he called the difference principle, said that there are there are times in a society where inequality is not just possible, but it's also morally and politically licit, as long as that inequality has the final end, the final goal of lifting up, of assisting the worse off. So you could say that, for instance, giving more money to those who are more likely to be entrepreneurs or more likely to spend, that may well end up lifting up those who are desperately in need of a job or sort of dependent on the services sector or whatever. I mean, Waleed, you've, you've raised very powerful, I think, objections to the idea that giving more money to those people who already have it will, in fact, lead to uh, the economic outcome. So I, I don't necessarily want to prejudge that. But I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering about – I'm trying to find the right language to frame it. I'm wondering about the spiritual or even the moral effect of many of us being permitted to pay less tax as if paying tax in the first place were somehow an onerous or burdensome or morally undesirable thing. It seems to me that part of the moral status of taxation and of paying tax as a, you know, as a commensurate aspect of one's income that one of the things that that does is it's one of the ways that we are reminded of our ongoing obligation to reinvest in society and to care for those with whom we are socially, politically connected. So I guess as a matter of moral diagnosis, are we permitted to feel glad about being able to pay less tax? Um, I think 
Well, if we were if we were in a position where we were providing all the public goods we need, if we were investing, say, early childcare, uh, making it affordable or even free, um, if we were giving those, you know, the, uh, the unemployed and the vulnerable, vulnerable members of our society, uh, kind of a reasonable income. And then we could have some tax cuts. Sure, we could be happy about it. Uh, we could think of that second holiday or whatever it is, uh, all the trivial things that high-income earners can now uh, afford. But we are so far away from that. We are the the the, the gap between those the 20% at the top uh, of society and those at the bottom, the 20% at the bottom, is now 90. The, the wealthy are 90 times wealthier on average than those. At the bottom, I mean, we're, there's so much inequality, there's so much poverty, there's so much child, children living in poverty, that I think it is quite problematic to feel kind of relieved or, or glad that you got a tax cut. And if you felt that, you need to really start cultivating uh, better dispositions. You should be thinking about not only what you have to gain from, say, the budget, but what kind of society you want to live, what kind of society you want to give your children and 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 all children. So the next generation. So, uh, no, we're not at a stage where we should be uh, high income earners or even mid income earners should be celebrating those tax cuts. I don't think so. A lot of this depends ultimately on the value that you want to attach to the idea of inequality. So Mm, that's true. Now, now that's partly, I guess, the conversation you were having before, Luara, about philosophers see this question of the relationship between inequality and justice very differently. But I think I might have made this observation before. The thing that struck me most about the pandemic was the way in which the problems of inequality became manifest in the health crisis. Um, by that, I mean it was largely people at, in lower socioeconomic groups that were cajoled by their circumstances into behaviour that risked um, a second wave happening in Victoria, for example, and which in fact did trigger it, right? You know, so people who didn't have access to sick leave were forced um, or at least felt forced by their circumstances to go to work when they were sick and infectious and on it went. Um, you could even argue about the use of certain kinds of labour in private uh, security firms in hotel quarantine, the impact that that had. I know there are a lot of elements that go into making a second wave or allowing a second wave to happen, but the relationship of inequality is really significant there. And I, I'd noticed, I'd noted previously the, relation, the, the fact that it was often people who were running businesses and might have been financially successful up to that point in their lives that were bearing the brunt financially for the circumstances that people who were not uh, secure um, were put in, right? So, in other words, the inequality, the effect of the inequality rebound on those who presumably win out of the inequality. Um, the absence of pandemic leave was, I think, an important factor in, in all of this. So, in other words, we've just had a lived experience of what inequality can do. And yet, we don't seek refuge in solving that. We seek refuge in accepting inequality as a necessary outcome of growing the pie overall. And that says to me that there's something deeply ingrained within us about the unimportance of inequality or on the flip side, the value of inequality in creating overall prosperity. We, we, have, we have bought that wholly. And, you know, the, uh, there's obviously entire economic and... Um, philosophical commitments that undergird that, that say that that is right, that that is exactly how human society works and lives. So given that that's 
you know, the prevailing attitude of society, it seems, Luara, then why should we worry about inequality? We've just been, we've just faced the negative consequences of it in a quite a concrete way. And that doesn't seem to shift us. So there's nothing more to worry about, is there? <laughs> what, what more would you want in order to convince people via their material experiences that inequality is even a problem? Well, I, I guess I'm less pessimistic than you are that there hasn't been a shift. Uh, I think we, it's true that people are celebrating the budget. And I said, absolutely, we have seen this uh, discourse around what have I gained from this budget, etc. cetera. Uh, but I think uh, it's, I would say it's too early to just concede that there hasn't been a shift, that people haven't changed their attitude, especially, say, with the second wave in, in, in Victoria. But, you know, um, many people, one thing, one other thing that we are having a discussion all the time in public debates in, in Australia is about the standards of living of the next generation of young people, those younger, 35 and younger. Uh, you know, all economists agree that this is going to be a generation that will have worse uh, living standards than, than their parents and their grandparents. And so, uh, you know, you might not care about the worst off in society, say s s someone who has done really well, is in their 50s or 60s, enjoys their second home, uh, excited about the tax cuts, etc., might not have much sympathy towards those at the bottom, maybe think it's their fault, can't see how difficult it is uh, to lift yourself out of poverty, to go to a job interview if you don't have decent clothes, if you haven't had a proper meal. But anyway, can't see that. At least you might be moved by the fact that now your children are much less likely to enjoy the same standard of living that you did and have the same opportunities that you did. Well, ex so, except, Luara, that may not be true. All it does is move us close to a feudal model, right, where you, you get ahead via inheritance. So your children probably will be okay if you were okay. You, they just have to wait for you to die first. It's, just, it's not through their productivity or their labour, but it doesn't mean well, they won't get ahead. No, 80% of people who receive inheritance are already in their 50s. So your children have to wait quite a bit. And that's a difficult, uh, it's a long time to be waiting to earn a home, to have some sort of financial security. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, we really have to talk about an inheritance tax in this country. We need to take intergener intergeneration equality much more seriously. But, I, but all I'm saying is that <laughs> uh, I think this, there's still... There are things out there for Australians to see. Um, there are kind of new facts, information, uh, new experiences that Australians can take on board and rethink their kind of disregard for equality, if you like. And I hope they will. I hope they will see that it's not just about, you know, um, to, just about thinking how well they're doing. Yes, many of us uh, have done okay. You know, our, our haven't their situation. Our situations have changed through this pandemic. But look around and see how many people have been affected. Look at the vulnerable, low-skilled workers who couldn't afford uh, not to go to work, etc. cetera. Um, and, and think about whether this is a society you want to live in and if this is a society you want to give to, to the next generation. And I think once you think, think a bit carefully and deeply about this, you might uh, change your mind about inequality. This actually raises a really important issue for me, I think. And I, I just want to return for a moment. I'm not sure. I don't want to pack too much into the term, into the words themselves, Loire, just in case you, I don't want to read too much into what you were saying. But it was kind of conspicuous the way that the prime minister uh, in announcing the doubling of the job seeker 
uh, allowance or benefit. Uh, it was striking the way that he kept using the phrase through no fault of their own, through no fault of their own. This is, this is a misfortune. This is a calamity that has overtaken many people, not because they didn't work hard, not because they were lazy, not because they were somehow dissolute on the job, but through no fault of their own. And it just strikes me that even, even that language kind of reflects the idea that it's only in remarkable circumstances like we're living through now that people can find themselves in a state of almost unbearable misfortune at which point it's society's and politics' responsibility to step in and to shoulder part of the load. I mean, okay, we all have agency and, well, some less than others, I think. Uh, we all make certain decisions and we all live with the consequences of those decisions. But an awful lot of our common life is based on or structured around what can only be called, I think, luck and misfortune. And sometimes luck and misfortune, you know, having opportunities that other people don't have uh, or not having other uh, opportunities that people do have, uh, when society, if you like, reifies that, when it builds that into its very structure, it can feel an awful lot like kind of predetermined fate, that this is just my lot in life. And I guess I've been haunted lately by this wonderful line from the first edition of, of John Rawls's uh, um, uh, Theory of Justice, where he says that is the index of a just and moral society that we share one another's fate. In other words, at the very point that we're tempted to say through, no, you know, through fault of their own, this calamity has overtaken them. At exactly that point, a just society, if you like, steps in and willingly shares the load, knowing that there's an awful lot that, that takes place in our lives that we frankly have no control of at all, and that it's part of the job of justice, part of the role of justice, to ameliorate that, to, to, to blunt it, to bear the consequences of our, of our behavior in common. So I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, have we seen through this pandemic a kind of ratification of the language of through no fault of their own. In other words, there are some people who are unemployed precisely through their fault and therefore we need to leave them on the barest amount possible. Uh, or is there, is there opportunity here, if you like, to, to reimagine the instances, the reality, the power of just plain misfortune? Yeah, I mean, I, I maybe I'm just such an optimistic person, but I, I would hope that we can reimagine that. I mean, the problem is not so much that the, the language of through no fault of their own. The problem is that we think of those things in very narrow terms, whether you, you know, you had to close your business or you, you were made redundant, etc. But there are things like the fact that you, you grew up uh, in, a, in a family environment with, with, a, with a lot of violence or, be, or you grew up in a family that didn't value education or you didn't have a full belly when you went to school or you were in a very uh, dangerous suburb and so you're not always stressed and always worried about your personal security. All those things can make a, can have an impact on how well you do later on in terms of professional achievement, etc. And so, you know, if we could broaden that discussion and think and recognize that there's so many things that can impact how well we fare when we become adults, how you know, what kind of skills we can acquire, what kind of jobs we can um, perform, then hopefully we'd see that the overwhelming majority of people who find themselves in that position where they are struggling and they need uh, societal support are not there as a matter of choice. They are not hmm. uh, pitch pumps. And, uh, you know, they, they really have 
had less luck than those in many ways than those who were um, who were more fortunate. I mean, I look back at my own upbringing. I grew up in Brazil, and it's very interesting how you can easily kind of tell a story that uh, privileges effort and you know ability. So I can look back and say, oh, I grew up in Brazil, and I managed to come to Australia and study here, and I got a PhD, and now I work at a very good Australian university. Wow, what an achievement! And of course, I made an effort. I studied hard. I spent all my 20 studies, in my, all my 20s studying. But I also, I was very lucky. I grew up in a, a household where everyone valued education, where I always had all the meals I needed, all the support of my schooling. Uh, you know, Brazil is a very violent country, but I lived in a town that wasn't as violent. And so I didn't deal with so much stress, as, as much stress in some other Brazilians uh, who live in Sao Paulo and other parts of the country. And so there's a very close world to the world I, to, to, to this world where I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have been here, not because I made less of an effort, just because I got a little bit less lucky. I had parents that didn't encourage me to go to university or ask me to start working when I was 16 to or 14 to help with the family bills, right? I knew many people who were much smarter than me and much more capable than me in Brazil, who just had something in their lives that made it impossible for them to get as much education as I did and say, uh, be in a position that I find myself in. So it's very easy to privilege the part of your life narrative that, uh, re- that, that focuses on effort and hard work and forget about all that other stuff Mm. That makes a huge difference. So I think that's true. But you know who it seems doesn't think that's true? Are the people, at least as expressed at the ballot box, and especially in Australia, are the people that you seem, that you're describing there, Luara. So this is what's fascinating to me, right? The people who vote for this economic vision tend to be, in Australia, they're people in the suburbs that might be stretched in some way. It could be through mortgage stress or something like that. They're not destitute, but they're battling, shall we say. The people who vote against this and espouse the kind of analysis that you have just offered tend to be people who do fairly well from the knowledge economy, um, are tertiary educated, or people who might feel the genuinely concrete crushing effects of um, of inequality we're talking about, you know, people who are genuinely poor. Um, but our elections in Australia certainly have been won via aspiration. They have not been won via people wanting to remove barriers to other people, the, to people's progress. The dream of aspiration, the belief in the ability of work and effort to allow you to climb is really, really deep where it matters, where it decides elections. And I think at some point we have to reckon with that fact, don't we? We we have to acknowledge that this is a narrative that seems to be being offered on behalf of people who don't want it. I I agree. And I think here there's a role to play. The media has a role to play. Uh, what, What stories are we telling and how we're telling those stories? And politicians, I mean... But why do do politicians have that role to play? If you're a politician who believes in aspiration and believes in self-starting, that's your philosophical outlook. It's not your role to turn around and try to convince people of the opposite of that. Sure. I think that's the case for many politicians. But I think there are many, many politicians out there, more to say the progressive left, that don't buy that story. And why are are they not being more vocal? I mean, they have a responsibility here to be more bold. Uh, I mean, I think that goes back to what kind of elections we have in this country, 
um, you know, what kind of uh, promises get rewarded and what promises don't. And I agree with you, it's, it's a hurdle, it's a, a big hurdle. But I think uh, all those in a position of influence have to see whether they are kind of helping cement that story that is all about merit. Even, you know, well-intentioned feminists who want women to lean in, right? Everyone has to think about whether it helps. It might help some people, but does it help, going back to how you started the program, Wally, does it help the kind of structure we have in place? Uh, and is it the more the, the kind of most effective way to shift things towards a more equal society? Or is this idea of equality that we're kind of painting in this conversation just wrong? I mean, if it's, if it's losing consistently at the level of public opinion, at the level of political debate, over and over and over and over again, at what point do we say, well, maybe it's wrong? Well, I don't think we should ju- judge based on preferences. People have all sorts of terrible, terrible preferences. Yeah, but this and is repeated and it's now becoming intergenerational. Sure. So is domestic violence and so is uh, risky behavior, right? So people have terrible preferences and we uh, can't just I think raise our hands up. And think, well, people are going to continue having those preferences. We just give up. I think we need to, we can't give up on this fight. It's too important. There are too many children right now growing up in poverty in Australia that have no prospect of ever, you know, leading a decent life. They are kind of doomed to be on this very low payment, spend their whole lives feeling humiliated and feel, feeling like a failure when they there was nothing else they could have done. That kind of the cards were stacked against them. And I just think we can't give up for their sake. And th- that's all fine. But the problem is that those people exist also in other systems of politics. And they have for a long time. So I think pointing to the fact that those people exist doesn't necessarily answer the question or or the the point that, you know, overwhelmingly the populace seems very comfortable with this idea of meritocracy and self-reliance and so on. Can I just add just one? I, I know we're out of time and I'll be very, very brief. It is, I think, one thing that you've maybe not necessarily left out, but you haven't mentioned yet, Walid is the extent to which this narrative that you're describing, yes, it is a very powerful one. And one of the reasons it's been so successful is because of the overtly moral overlay that it has been given over the course of the last four decades, where where, uh, lack of opportunity, where poor life choices, uh, where um, uh, the failure to aspire enough to get a good job or to have the discipline one needs to keep one's job or to feed one's children or whatever else, that these are all regarded as fundamentally moral failings or failings of agency and that the very act of aspiring to something more than what we have also has a kind of form of a degree of relational or comparative contempt. In other words, I aspire to this unlike those deadbeats who dot, 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 dot. And so I think one of the – this all reflects I think a very serious and I think a really problematic change where people's failures have themselves been regarded, have come to be regarded as moral failings and people's successes have come to be regarded as fundamentally moral successes. And that's one of the reasons why the language of aspiration is itself I think basically received – as being a kind of ethical 
aspiration. I think the more we come to grips with the idea that it's part of our responsibility in society to share one another's fate and that all of us, all of us, all of us to some extent are born into deeply indebted, deeply contingent uh, systems of relationships and mutual interdependence, I think that gives that gives us the opportunity to, yes, continue to aspire, but not to do so uh, with that predicate of contempt for those who don't. Mm. I would love to keep going, actually. But I know that if we do, we'll end up talking about aristocracy. That's where we normally end up doing, yes. isn't it, Scott? Yes. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Loara, it's always great fun having you on. Thank you so much for, you for helping me out. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.